When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. American Glutton is now on Patreon. If you want weekly bonus episodes, ad-free episodes, or you'd like to watch the video versions of the show, check out patreon.com slash American Glutton. We've also got a great community on our Discord channel, which is only available to our Patreon members. Check us out at patreon.com slash American Glutton. Hi. I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glutton. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. I hate to ask you to do anything, but if you're enjoying the show... Please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, review, all of the above on whatever app you're getting it from. American Glutton is brought to you by Trifecta. Trifecta is the perfect tool for diet and maintenance adherence. It reduces time, thought, and effort in making sure I am never without the food I need to succeed. Go to www.trifectanutrition.com slash American Glutton, where you will get 40% off your first order. My guest today is health and science journalist and New York Times bestselling author, Max Lugavere. Max is the author of both Genius Foods and his newest book, Genius Kitchen. After watching his mother struggle with dementia, Max realized that you don't need to wait until your memory fails to start preserving it. Max believes you can eat in such a way as to boost your brain health, and he is here to share his learnings with all of us. You can find Max on Instagram at Max Lugavere. Max Lugavere, welcome to the American Glutton Podcast. Ethan, it's an honor. Thank you for having me, man. Appreciate it. I'm so excited to talk to you. You have a, a new book coming out, Genius Foods. Genius Kitchen. Genius Kitchen. Okay, I want I want to understand all aspects of this. Like like 
I'm obsessed with food and I'm obsessed with all different types of food. I want shit to taste good. I want shit that makes me healthier. I, I want to know all yeah. about it. So what, what is a genius kitchen? Yeah, man. Well, I'm glad you asked first. I mean, off the bat, I just have to say I'm a big fan of yours. I, I loved your, uh, I listened to all the way through to your appearance on Rogan last year. Was it last year? It was yes. awesome. Yeah. Um, so again, just thank you so much for having me on your show. It is a, it's a privilege. Um, so I wrote my first book, Genius Foods, which came out in 2018. And, uh, I wrote it, I was motivated by the fact that my mother got very sick at a very young age. She developed a rare form of dementia called Lewy body dementia. Um, and when she first started to display those, those earliest symptoms, it threw my family. I mean, to say it threw my family for a loop is probably the understatement of the year. It was like a Hiroshima bomb going off in my world. And I had always been interested um, and passionate about fitness and nutrition. Growing up, I was I became really interested in bodybuilding as a way of sort of circumventing my introverted, insecure self. I, I just gravitated to uh, exercise science. And it was something that, though I never wanted to ever like become a bodybuilder, I was just really interested in fitness and the science behind it. So much so that when I started college, I was pre-med. But then halfway through, I realized that I was really... Um, a more of a creative. Um, and that I didn't think I realized that the academic route wasn't going to be for me. So I ended up going into journalism and still had this private passion for fitness and nutrition in my back pocket. And I did, I, I, I was a journalist post-college for about six years, uh, working with some of the best of the best in the industry. But then in my personal life in the year 2011, my mom started to, sh to show those symptoms. And I had not, I hadn't had a, pr uh, a prior family history of any kind of neurodegenerative condition. Um, and we started going to doctor's visits. I accompanied her as her patient wingman, so to speak. Doctor's visit after doctor's visit in New York City. And what I experienced there, I've come to call diagnose and adios. Um, you know, you're, you're met with a strange and esoteric battery of tests. The doctor doesn't really explain much. And in most cases, he just jots a couple of notes down on a prescription pad and sends you on your way. But it wasn't until the Cleveland Clinic that we uh, were prescribed drugs for both Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. And for me, that was like, you know, in movies, like the, the record stopping, like the scratching of the record, like that was that moment for me where I realized I couldn't focus on anything else. And I became fixated with trying to understand to the best of my ability, what dietary and lifestyle factors might contribute to somebody developing a, a condition as complex as Alzheimer's disease or other forms of dementia. Um, what could be done potentially to help, you know, maybe there was a diet out there that could have a disease modifying effect for my mother. I didn't know. I, I approached it really from the standpoint of curiosity and, and open-mindedness and what, if anything could be done to prevent it from happening to myself. So that began a decade long inquiry into the medical literature, utilizing the skills that I had garnered as a, as a journalist and investigator, exploiting my position as a quasi public figure to reach out to scientists around the world, um, to talk to them, to converse with them. And what I did was I basically identified the foods that I thought to be in, in my combing of the medical literature and leaving no stone unturned, the foods that were most supportive of optimal brain health and brain function and, and cardiovascular health and metabolic health and, and fitness. And I called those foods the genius foods. And, and that's not a scientific term, of course. It's a term that I invented. Um, but if you read my first book, Genius Foods, I'm identifying those books. But then in between the identification of those books, I have these, um, the, the body of the book is really all about 
how best to care for the human brain. I consider it the ultimate sort of nutritional care manual for the human brain. And then my new book, Genius Kitchen, is really putting uh, the rubber to the road and making the recommendations actionable. And, you know, as you say, at the start of the podcast, food is entertainment, but it's also love. It's how we show up for one another. And so it's taking all of those recommendations that I make in Genius Foods and turning them into delicious dishes, if you will. Yeah, I... So I just want to totally understand this, and 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 I, I'm I'm almost a little choked up here. I didn't I didn't really know your backstory and and your kind of your, your evolution story in in that way. I, I I was familiar with um your book, and I I knew you had this um new book. My uh mother has a very uh, atypical rare form of Parkinson's called super nu- nuclear palsy Mm. and 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 there was this uh few year period uh when she was diagnosed with this of my family going like the the medical industry saying we don't have treatments here's um uh garbodopa or gabadopa or something like that some drug cinemet yeah yeah for for parkinson's that's really just gonna prolong her life it's not gonna actually help her um, it could slow down and, and help the symptoms. But then we went on this like um, long, like trips to Mexico for special uh, uh, stem cells that are not available here and, and all these things. If there is a, uh, and so I'm sorry, I didn't mean to lay that heavy trip on you, but, but oh, I can um, relate. it is, it is a heavy trip. It's a lot, it's a lot to deal with because the brain is largely still out of their hands. Like they, they go like, we, we can, we, we've got a name for this, but we don't know what causes it. We don't know what to do about it. But so I'm hearing you and going like, is there really a way? And, and, and I'm trying to think of these two things as, as separate things of overall health separate from brain health. And we can actually do something to preserve our brains. Like as we live longer and longer, and these are, and, and, and the way I understand it, there are certain nerves in our brains that are not regenerating the way the rest of the body regenerates. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, I can, I can totally relate. And you know what I said earlier that I experienced diagnosis and adios in every doctor's office that I went to with my mom. One thing that they say, it's sort of a cold joke echoed through the halls of medical school is that neurologists don't treat disease. They admire it. Right. And that's because we, there's so little that we know about the human brain, let alone these disease states that take years, if not decades to manifest. I mean, Parkinson's disease, for example, is a condition where by the time you show up to the neurologist with the, with the first symptom, that wrap. half, yeah, half of the neurons in the substantia nigra portion of the brain, the dopamine producing neurons in the substantia nigra, which are involved in movement are already dead, yeah. half of them. So it's really dire. And that to me, that's where my focus became. It became very clear to me that I needed to use um, my skills and my story to get this message of prevention out to people and not just, you know, older people not just people that are already kind of thinking about their brain health, but younger people, millennials, because again, as I mentioned, this is a, these are diseases that begin in the brain far earlier than the presentation of symptoms. And they are under, there are understudied dementias out there. My mother, as I mentioned, she had a condition called Lewy body dementia, which 
um, is super rare. It affects one in five patients with dementia. The, the vast majority of people that are listening to this are going to be most familiar with Alzheimer's disease, which is the most common form of dementia. And all the money goes into that, essentially. But regardless of the variant of dementia that you have, they typically prescribe the same drugs, which work to varying levels, depending on what kind of dementia you have. But ultimately, for anybody who's on those drugs, those drugs are merely biochemical band-aids. They, they have no disease-modifying progress. And, that, and reading that, I can remember it almost like it was yesterday when I was in the hotel at the Cleveland Clinic reading the Wikipedia of the drugs, right? Because that's where I, that was my first source as a, as a lay person, right? I went, I consulted Dr. Google and I asked, what are these drugs that my mom just got prescribed? None of them have a disease modifying effect. They merely patch up symptoms and they're in a, in a patient with um, a more rare uh, presentation they are even less effective. So my mother was on Cinemet as well and didn't work. And the problem is that these drugs, they're not benign. They're not free rides. So if they're not working, you have to ask yourself, should the patient even be on them? Because there's no such thing as a biological free run, free lunch. And what they do, you know, these drugs, Cinemet in particular, is it floods the brain with dopamine, levodopa and carbid, carbidopa. And what happens is that these um, neurotransmitters uh, apply ox a form of oxidative stress to the neurons. And so if they're not helping, the question then becomes, should the patient really be on them? Should we, we be looking elsewhere for alternative treatments? So yeah, it is, it's, uh, it's complicated and it's sad. And, and that's why I think it's so important to be having this conversation about foods that are actually going to protect your brain as you age. And so the, and so again, these are separate things. Like when I think about, um, healthy food. I, I never, there's never a brain association for me. It's all, it all comes in my mind down to like cardiovascular health and, and like how lean can I be, which then lends itself to cardiovascular health. You know, that is ultimately what I'm thinking about. And then sometimes I think about like some studies on cancer that show if you're eating a lot of uh, carcinogens. So then there's, there's that kind of correlation too, where it's like, okay, I want to stay away from that. And I want to stay away from stuff that's going to make me overweight or more overweight, but I'm never thinking about my brain as far as health goes. Never. It's never a consideration. Well, that's okay. As long as you realize that there's a connection between the brain and the body. I mean, that alone is something that most people over overlook. Yeah. No, but I, I think I, I think I didn't think it was possible. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, yeah. I, 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 I and I don't know much about biology, but I think of like the blood brain barrier and I think of like our nutrients actually getting there and what what is powering our brain. Like, I just don't know. I know like our brain uses some cholesterol, I think, and oxygen and like what else what else does our brain need? Yeah, it needs it needs a lot, actually. Um, you know, so the regeneration of neurons isn't possible in most regions of the brain. However, it is possible in some of the more important regions of the brain, like the hippocampus, which is how we process memories. Um, but the, what we eat also supplies the building blocks that our brain uses to create new brain cells in those areas. And also the building blocks that the brain uses to fortify existing neurons. We can also, with our diets and lifestyles, modulate various growth factors that um, help support the survival, help promote the survival of our existing brain cells like BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So, for example, the consumption of DHA fat, docosahexaenoic uh, fatty acid is um, found in wild salmon to a much smaller degree, but 
is nonetheless there in grass-fed beef and eggs. And so that's a very important structural building block for the brain. And it also promotes the expression of BDNF, which is super important. Um, we can also, I mean, there are various lifestyle factors that can improve brain health. For example, exercise is medicine when it comes to the brain. Exercise is actually a disease modifying treatment for mild cognitive impairment, which is a sort of front runner for developing more severe forms of cognitive decline. Eating in a way that manages your blood pressure, super, super important. We know thanks to the Sprint Mind Trial that keeping your blood pressure at a normal and healthy level, and this is something that we can all modify with food among other factors, um, can help prevent mild cognitive impairment and prevent it, or actually reverse mild cognitive impairment and prevent it from progressing to more advanced forms to, you know, of cognitive impairment like dementia. We also can fortify the brain with protective molecules. So, you know, some of the foods that I talk about in Genius Foods are plant foods that are rich in compounds called carotenoids. So two in particular, lutein and zeaxanthin are found in abundance in dark leafy greens and foods like avocados and grass-fed beef um, and the yolks of eggs. And these carotenoids were orig originally identified for playing a protective role in with respect to eye health. So these two carotenoids, you'll find them usually in eye health supplements because they can help pre prevent age-related macular degeneration. But we now know that eyes are neural tissue. Our eyes are an extension of the brain. And so thanks to modern science, we know that these same compounds accumulate in the brain. They protect your brain as it ages. They protect your cellular membranes, which is super important. Um, it's how membranes, it essentially provides the ears that um, neurons use to talk to one another. I'm getting to the age max where a lot of my friends are starting to wear glasses to read up close stuff. Is this a sign of degeneration? It could be. I mean, that my, my hypothesis would be that, you know, by protecting your eyes, you're protecting your brain. Right. Um, and that eyes are really a window to the brain. Um, and that's been, that's been stated by, by other experts, but, um, but yeah, by doing what we can to support eye health and vice versa, we are protecting our brains. So I, that's why one of the reasons why I'm a huge fan of these carotenoids in particular. They've done studies, a number of studies now on these two compounds, lutein and zeaxanthin, where they've shown that increased levels um, in the brain, which they actually will measure by looking at the macula, which is a portion of the retina. So the amount of these carotenoids, um, the concentration of these carotenoids in the macula are thought to correlate very tightly with the amount in brain tissue. And They've shown that higher levels are associated with better cognitive aging, protection against these kinds of conditions that we're talking about, Alzheimer's disease, other forms of dementia. And also when they give them, here's what's super interesting for like young people like us, that when they give these compounds supplementally to college students, they see an improvement in their brain's visual processing speed, which is fascinating, right? Because like you, you already expect younger people to be at their peak of cognitive prowess, right? Only to have like these processes kind of like decline as we get older. But even as a younger person eating foods like kale, which is like one of the top sources of lutein and zeaxanthin or egg yolks or avocados can actually have a, a, a marked effect in terms of our cognitive function. So like people always ask me, like, what, what are your views on nootropics? And I think food is the ultimate nootropic, especially when talking about foods like, like dark leafy greens. So you can get all this stuff without supplementing it. Cause I, I, I know we have in my house lutein as yeah. a supplement that we take that I, I, you know, I'm never good at taking supplements, but I know my wife, when she like 
realizes you haven't taken a vitamin in a week and she puts together a batch. That's one of them. So without, without taking that, we can get all this just through our food. Yeah, you absolutely can. I mean, that's why for me, it was really important to, and I know you've talked about this on your podcast, like rather than, than just put out another book that tells people really what not to eat. I wanted to make it really easy and tell people what to eat. So again, the genius foods, it's a set of 10 foods um, that really represent categories of foods, but to make it as easy as possible for people, I highlighted the 10 most accessible, low cost foods that people can find pretty much anywhere that are going to provide all of these nutrients that I talk about. I mean that, but that's another big consideration because having this conversation a lot, it's thrown in my face a lot that I'm a, a, a quote unquote wealthy actor and that gives me a step up. Now I, I wouldn't pretend that I don't have it as hard as some people that, that I wouldn't, I just wouldn't pretend that. However, I don't consider myself wealthy. I know wealthy people. I prepare all my food. I go to the grocery store. I'm responsible for all of that. I have cost factor considerations. Like I don't like to shop at Air One because it's disgustingly expensive in my opinion. I know I don't have to shop at Air One. I can go to other stores and get grass-fed beef and wild-caught salmon and pastured eggs that are no longer astronomically expensive. Like this is all possible. I also think that, and I'd love, I'd love your input on this, but like, if you're, if your number one goal, like what we're talking about is more long-term health. If your number one goal is just weight loss and you're eating 99% of your food is just highly processed fast food, just reducing that is could be a good step one and that you're saving money. So for me, the, the, the money argument is, is like a cop out a little bit because I think it all can be done for less than whatever people are doing now. I don't think it has to be more expensive. Yeah. I mean, I actually, I totally agree with you. And the other thing is I've experienced this firsthand with my family. If there's anything that's expensive, it's chronic disease. I mean, it's like the most expensive thing to have to contend with uh, from the standpoint of, of the family, but also at the state level and at the, at the global level, it's incredibly expensive. And with a little planning um, and knowing how to shop and, and knowing what to buy and also getting rid of some of the nutritional misinformation that sometimes permeates even the wellness world, um, you know, the sort of black or white perfectionist thinking like everything has to be organic, like shedding some of that dogma, I think is super important and can help people really um, cost effectively build out a really healthy diet um, on a budget. I think one of the biggest things and one of the ma- major reasons why I decided to write my new cookbook, Genius Kitchen, is that cooking home, I mean, is one of the major ways like cook, learning how to cook is one of the major uh, leverage points for people to really start to economize, improve their health in so many ways, and not just improve their health, but imp- improve their family dynamic. There have been studies that have shown that eating at home improves metabolic markers. It's associated people who eat at home more have better BMIs typically. And I know the BMI is an imperfect uh, indicator of, of somebody's um, health status, but associate, associated with improved family dynamics. I mean, this is something that my mother instilled in me and, and was so important to my family growing up. We always ate dinner together as a family. Um, and that's some, is one of the reasons why me and my, I have two younger brothers. We're so incredibly close. Um, and I, I owe that to my mom. And so yeah, I think cooking at uh, home, learning how to cook, it's 
so crucially important. And again, not need, not feeling the need to buy everything organic. I mean, grass fed beef, I promote grass fed beef, right? But I'll be the first to say that if you can't afford, or if you don't have access to grass fed beef, crane fed beef, typical, you know, feedlot beef, even though I, it kills me to that, you know, knowing that somebody's going to hear this and then go out and support the factory farm system, even grain fed beef is highly nutrient dense and a way better option for dinner than boxed mac and cheese, for example, (laughs) from the standpoint of your cardiovascular health, of your metabolic health and of your brain health. So helping people really understand all these nuances is super, super important to me. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Do you, do you get frustrated as the fads come when they seem to be like, and, and again, I, I, I try, I try to be empathetic towards everybody. And I try to perceive what, what others goals are and go like, well, I, you know, if that person's goal is just to do away with factory farming, I understand that desire. However, I think that there are, um, unintended consequences that could come from that that would be not great if if i look at what my goals are right um but that said like you're talking about leafy greens and beef and i i i i can hear like there's there's groups of people out there that are against both of these things you know what i mean like right now there is a a demonization of vegetables that's happening and there's always kind of been a group that's been anti-meat too and so like like those two things there are being in california you got people actively advocating against these things even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at moonpig.com. Yeah, I mean, and I find myself situated, some some would call my dietary recommendations extreme, right? Like the nutritional orthodoxy will say, well, you don't advocate for whole grains. Um, and, And so that's an extreme diet. So I find myself sort of in between those two camps. I, I, but I would refer to my, I would call, I would consider myself to some degree carnivore adjacent 
Um, and I wouldn't say the same thing for the plant-based eaters because I'm convinced that animal products are incredibly healthy and, and vital to, from the standpoint of metabolic health, brain health, cardiovascular health. And we can get into the nuances of, of that recommendation, but just to add my own end of one anecdote to the mix and what I experienced with my family, my mother had very poor health. She passed away um, at the end of 2018 and she before passing away, she suffered with this dementia for eight years. And then she, um, labor day of 2018 was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Oh. Um, so yeah, it was, I mean, I've been, I've had, uh, the most tragic experience when it comes to health in my family. And, and it's what motivates me every single day to do what I'm doing. But I'll say that my mother was a uh, vegetarian. She was largely vegetarian. She occasionally ate fish, but she grew up her whole life concerned with heart disease. She would always say that it ran in her family. And so her generation without access to the internet, she was very um, attuned to messaging surrounding heart disease risk factors that would come out through the media um, and through her social groups and through the news that she would watch on TV. And so she was terrified of consuming dietary cholesterol saturated fat. I never saw her eat eggs. She never ate red meat. She was also a, a big animal rights advocate. She never ate red meat. She would occasionally eat lean, skinless chicken breast and fish, but that's it. That's it. And she would go to town on refined grain products, you know, especially the ones that would have the red heart healthy logo on them. I grew up consuming margarine and we always had canola oil by the stove growing up. I'm not being hyperbolic. That's just sort of the environment that I, that I grew up in. My mom was very afraid of, of heart disease. So that's, and, and we grew up in, I grew up in New York city. So we had access to all the best food. We were very privileged in that, in that sense, but that's how she ate. And so Looking back, I can't say, well, that's that caused my mom's illness, but I know with certainty that it didn't help her. And so when looking at foods like red meat, for example, wild fatty fish or even store bought farmed fish, you know, these are some of the, the most nutrient dense foods available to your average person. Now, we can be a perfectionist about things and we can say, well, grass fed beef is going to be the best. Your salmon should only be wild and, you know, and and so forth. but. We live in the modern food environment, and sometimes we find ourselves in restaurants, sometimes we find ourselves in food deserts, sometimes we find ourselves um, financially strapped and not able to afford these best case scenarios. But even given that, I think it's really important for people to know that um, these foods still can fortify your health. Like when you look at the research, observationally, people who eat more fish have better brain health. Their children, their progeny have better brain health. Mothers who eat more fish, right? And this population level research called epidemiology, people in this country are not eating, for the most part, wild salmon, right? They're eating canned tuna yeah. and stuff like that. So it's really important to take all of these factors into, into consideration and look at all the different levels of evidence. So you've got observational data, which is not always useful. Like uh, epidemiology is when it comes to nutrition, it's almost worthless because everything is confounded by what's called healthy user bias. So people who eat more red meat at the population level tend to smoke. They tend to eat more. They tend to be more overweight, more sedentary. People who eat grains, whole grains tend to be more health conscious because that's so not the norm today. Most of the grains that people consume are in the form of refined grains that are used to make ultra processed food products, right? If you look observationally, 
I'll just give you an example to, to show, to illustrate how this works. If you look at the population level and you were to tease out all of the people who eat quinoa on a regular basis <laughs> in the United States, right? I guarantee you their health is vastly better, right? Than your average meat eater, vastly better. Well, I don't but know if they're this probably interested in exercise and su vitamin supplementation and right. all the other stuff. If you know how to pronounce quinoa, it's a sign, right? That you probably are reading about health. You're probably interested in health. So that's all healthy user bias. And epidemiology is riddled with confounding variables when it comes to um, these individual foods, food, food items, right? Like beef, even dark leafy greens. I mean, I will, um, till the cows come home, I, I advocate for the consumption of dark leafy greens. But even studies that show that people who regularly consume dark leafy greens um, have better brain health, you could say that that's healthy user bias. Right. Um, you know, I, I got to say, I have some suspicions about kale simply because like I never heard of it. And then like it was just so omnipresent and so on the list of like, you got to have kale shakes and kale this. And, and now we're doing braised kale instead of collard greens or whatever. And I just some part of me that um, is distrustful of big companies and the government looked at that and went some big company accidentally planted kale, had a bunch of it and had to market it to us. Like, this is my suspicion. But at the same time, like, I know that I will, I, I don't enjoy vegetables. So I will occasionally have a craving for vegetables and go like, oh my God, I must be deficient in something. And I eat the vegetables and I feel better. And kale is for sure on that list of you know, a vegetable that I don't really enjoy, but like, I know my body needs it occasionally. Yeah. You don't, I mean, you don't, you certainly don't need to eat kale and I'm not in financially involved. No, no, in I'm not accusing yeah. you of anything. Yeah, no, no, no. But, but my, I guess my disclosure would be, I personally like kale. Like, you know, you mentioned Erewhon. I'm a huge fan of some of their, their kale based salads. So of like, of course, I don't mean yeah. to diss Erewhon. I listen, <laughs> my, my Erewhon evolution story goes back to like, when I was a little kid, my mom, uh, who was obsessed with health, but mostly I think because I was overweight and it was a problem she was trying to handle in me, but I did like, as a kid, all every crazy thing you could imagine, like I was muscle tested. Have you heard of muscle testing? Yeah. Where they like say the name of a nutrient and they see whether or not they like you hold it's <laughs> It's like really crazy witchcraft. They hold you hold your yeah. arm up and they like pick different things and like push down on your arm harder or softer. And they're like, well, you're allergic to X because I planted this idea in your head and your arm got weak, like wacky wacky shit. But when I was a little kid, we would go to air one and there was like one of them in Los Angeles. And I don't think they turned the lights on. Everybody looked like everybody was either a Sikh or looked like they had cancer. And these were the people in air one eating like macrobiotic foods. This is like, you know, 40 years ago. And like, it was just a sign of me being punished for being fat, which was why we were there. Cut to I wake up in the present and it's like the most trendy place. Everything's insanely expensive. And I'm like, fuck that store. However, I know you can get good stuff there. Yeah, no, you can. I mean, I go there and I eat from the hot food bar. I don't shop there because it's just so exorbitantly expensive. But 
Going, I mean, going back to the dark leafy greens, yeah, there, there's a cost benefit of every single food. So kale, a lot of people have trouble digesting it, right? Raw vegetables in general, um, but kale is one of those things. I mean, it's a lot of roughage, right? It's also, it can um, be a vector for thallium, which is a heavy metal, but a lot of, a lot of plants can suck up heavy metals or, or, you know, various compounds from the soil, depending on what they're grown in. And the same there's also a cost associated with consuming cooked meat. I mean, when you cook meat, especially when you create like a char on the surface, you create compounds on the surface that could potentially in a Petri dish, for example, be a pro carcinogen to a, to a, to a cell. But I think like every treatment, so to speak, you have to look at the, you have to weigh the benefits versus the risks. And I think for many people eating a a bowl of dark leafy greens um, every day is going to come with benefit. There, so Rush University, there, a, a researcher there, um, Martha Claire Morris, she devised the uh, MIND diet, which um, they're doing a lot of work. They're showing dietary patterns are, that are associated with better brain health. Um, and I cite her research quite a bit, but one of the studies that she found is that people who eat a bowl of dark leafy greens every day have brains that perform up to 11 years younger um, oh, wow. on, uh, in terms of cognitive tests and look up to 11 years younger also in terms of imaging. And you know, you have to ask yourself, like, that's the observational research, right? Like that could, as I mentioned, be healthy user advice, but what's in dark leafy greens that could be fortifying our brains? Well, maybe you don't like kale, but if you take arugula, for example, arugula is the top dietary source of nitrates per calorie. Arugula has more um, nitrates, which are the compounds found that we typically ascribe to beets. We associate with beets, but by chewing arugula, you create nitric oxide in your mouth, which then, or in your, in your vasculature, which boosts vascular health and increases blood flow, lowers blood pressure, which we know is crucially important for good brain health and boosts blood flow to the degree that one single high nitrate meal, one single arugula salad could actually boost cognitive function via that axis. You've got micronutrients in spinach. You've got, as I mentioned, these carotenoids in kale. So, I mean, there is a lot of plausibility to this notion that dark leafy greens can can boost brain health yeah I, I, the idea of a sliced strip steak on top of arugula with some lemon maybe oh, some olive fire. oil that's an incredible meal yeah that's an incredible I, meal and that's a perfect meal i mean uh, you know as much as i advocate for for the consumption of of whole veggies i love a piece of grass-fed meat i think it's crucially important um from the standpoint of nutrient bioavailability uh, the presence of creatine, which a lot of fitness junkies will know, great for boosting physical performance, but also crucially important for cognitive health as well. They've done studies that have given where they've given supplemental creatine to omnivores and, ve- and vegetarians. Um, not a robust body of evidence here, but they've shown that supplemental creatine can actually can actually lead to an improvement in cognitive function in people who don't regularly consume meat. Um, so this is something that, you know, I, when I read that study, I was like, I would, I would think about my mom who never ate uh, red meat. I mean, she ate a little bit of fish here and there, which is also a source of creatine, but beef is also a great source of vitamin E. It's a small but significant source of omega, omega-3 fatty acids, um, great source of highly bioavailable zinc, of iron, um, vitamin B12, which is super important, low inadequacy of vitamin B12 is associated with depression, worse cognitive function. So food really is a form of medicine when it comes to the brain. And I think knowing that gives people agency, right? Because people think generally that they, that they're stuck with the brain that they're born with, right? 
but you actually have profound agency to improve the way that your brain functions at any point in life, no matter how young or old you are, just whatever your diet has been over the past couple of years, decades, there's always a point at which you can right the ship, so to speak, and improve the way that your brain works. And sometimes it's just making simple changes. And so in Genius Foods, you identify these food groups. In Genius Kitchen, like like as you're talking, uh, you know, I, I, a few things occurred to me where you're talking about a, a bowl of leafy greens and kale. I've had a kale salad before. I hate it. Cooked <laughs> kale, I don't mind. And so, and then I have like this memory of being a kid where there was some, there was a moment where it was like, you can't cook your vegetables, then you had to cook your vegetables. And so I arrived today going like, I, I don't know what should be cooked and what shouldn't in genius kitchen. Do you go over this, like how to cook meat? So you're not creating cancer and yeah. how to cook vegetables and which should be cooked and which shouldn't and all of that. Yeah. I'm super glad you asked. I'm really proud of this aspect of Genius Kitchen in particular, the fact that it's not just a recipe book. So you, in, in Genius, Genius Kitchen, you get hundred plus recipes that utilize all of the genius food. So if you don't like kale, it's no problem. There's a million other recipes in there, most of which there's no kale in sight, right? Lots of like great um, beef recipes, fish recipes, um, even really simple recipes that I hesitate to call recipe recipes. I teach people how to cook ingenious kitchen. So how to make a steak is something that I think every person, I was gonna say man, but every person really should know how to, sure. should, should know how to create, right? A simple burger patty. Most people butcher even a, the simplest um, and most nutrient dense things that you can make, which is a burger patty. Most people don't know how to make a really great burger patty, right? So I have all that in the book in terms of recipes, but the first half of the book, it's actually a two-part book. The first half of the book is a kitchen resource. So it breaks down every food um, group and explains what you should reach for and what you should try to avoid when shopping. It's got my best shopping hacks, my best money-saving hacks, ways to eliminate um, or minimize food waste. Um, and again, it's a, it's a really like thick, robust book. Uh, and I, I wrote it to be part recipe book, of course, but also part kitchen resource. So even if you've never read my any of my previous books, Genius Kitchen is sort of like an all-in-one, highly actionable guide. I can't wait to get this. The, 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 it's almost embarrassing to say, like, I, we have a library. In our library, there exists my favorite fiction. So there's like all of Vonnegut's books and John Fonte was a favorite of mine and Bukowski and guys like that. But really, it's mostly history and philosophy books. I never, ever, ever touch these books. These books don't get open. They were read when I was younger, and now they just sit on a shelf, and I try to encourage my kids to read them. The books I actively come in contact with daily are cookbooks. These are the books that are to hand always and like in the most used and like I and tape holding them together. You know what I mean? They don't look good on a shelf because they're, they're actually being used as books. So I'm really excited about your book because to be honest with you, I have so many, uh, so much data flying through my head that I probably didn't fully understand as a kid coming from my mom who had these, these bouts of health. upset. you know, there was a time period where anything white was not allowed to be eaten. Then there was like another time period. I remember where anything red was like, I, there was a period in my life where I was not allowed to have white cabbage. My kids call it green cabbage. I grew up calling it white cabbage, white cabbage, white onion, not allowed to have, these were poisonous to me. 
And like four years later, it was red cabbage and red onions, which I was not allowed. None of none of it was explained to me. But these were just the periods of my mom's health uh, evolution. And so I come to like, I don't know if I'm supposed to char broccoli or steam it or boil it or eat it raw. And and I'm excited to have a, a resource place to look for this stuff. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I that I've said since day one um, that I that I will continue to echo in Genius Kitchen and beyond is that there's no such thing as a one size fits all diet. And I think the problem with a lot of cookbook writers, diet book writers, health and wellness gurus is that they make the cardinal mistake of assuming that what works, what has worked for them is going to work for the masses. And that's not true. Everybody's different. And we all come from different cultures. We have different food preferences. We have different goals in mind. We have different genes. We have different genders. Like there's so many different, there are so many different variables at play that I like to remind people that, you know, while what has worked for me might not necessarily work for you, there still are some golden tenets that, um, we can all adopt that generally are going to do the most good for the most people. You know, for example, people have varying um, capacities to, or people have varying responses to dietary saturated fat. You know, somebody with genetic risk factors for Alzheimer's disease, for example, they might eat uh, a certain level of saturated fat that might cause their LDL levels to skyrocket. Whereas another person could eat all the butter that they want and their LDL levels will stay the same, right? So those two people are different. They have different genes. They're having a different response to we'll say the same food, right? But then you take a food like extra virgin olive oil, which has been studied in the hierarchy of evidence. It's been observationally. We see that people who consume more extra virgin olive oil have way better health, reduced risk for neurodegenerative conditions, cardiovascular disease, better metabolic health, better weight even. Um, and then you can look at randomized control trials like the PREDIMED study, which has shown that people that consume a liter of olive oil a week can improve cardiovascular risk factors, can improve risk factors associated with neurodegenerative disease. And then you look at the at animal studies and, and in vitro uh, petri dish, you know, cell cultures. And you see that extra virgin olive oil has this really wonderful protective effect over our health. And so it's those kinds of recommendations that I make in Genius Kitchen, knowing that everybody's different. What's going to do, what are the recommendations that are going to do the most, that I can make that are going to do the most good for the most people? And then what are the little caveats that I can add within the text that are going to allow people to cater my recommendations to their own unique biology? So that's really, that was, that's sort of been my goal um, from day one. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why people resonate um, so much with with my work and like, you know, why, one of the factors that I think that I get messages from people now all around the world, you know, whether it's weight loss or improved brain health, or they've been able to get off statins that their doctors have put them on, um, cholesterol lowering drugs. Um, it seems to be really effective. So even though I don't have that experience as a clinician, um, having books out there in the world, like, you know, and a, and a podcast, it's really given me this vantage point that I'm very grateful for. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's it's all great information and, and it doesn't seem like you're saying anything too radical. Are you against carbohydrates or just not advocating for whole grains? Those are two different things in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, good question. I'm not against um, carbohydrates. Uh, I'm definitely not. Um, and a carb isn't a carb in the sense that we have fiber, which is technically a carbohydrate. 
Um, so I'm not against carbohydrates. I implore people to see them differently, to see them as a performance enhancing tool, um, you know, and to titrate them up or down depending on activity levels. Um, I think that's a, a worthwhile way of thinking about, about starchier sources of carbohydrates in the diet. I'm not a keto zealot. Um, if that's what you're wondering, I, you know, I think that I've, and I talk a lot about ketosis, but I talk about it in the context of brain health. Um, and as a means of potentially treating some of these kinds of neurodegenerative conditions that I talk a lot about. Um, and I also think to be in intermittent ketosis, um, whether it's on a daily, monthly, or yearly period, I think is valuable from the standpoint of the brain. Um, beta hydroxybutyrate, we could talk about the fact that it, it's anti-inflammatory to the brain. It boosts BDNF, it boosts blood, blood flow to the brain. So there are all these cognitive benefits, I think, um, or not necessarily cognitive benefits, but uh, neurological benefits to being um, in ketosis at least some of the time. And I think it also, from an ancestral standpoint, makes a lot of logical sense, right? That at least some of the year we would have spent time in ketosis and that's sort of how our brains have evolved. But, um, there, well, there, are, brains, there are people are put on, you know, doctors put people on keto diets specifically for brain stuff like, uh, epilepsy, epilepsy uh, is, is, is treated with keto, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, epilepsy has been treated now for certain kinds of ep epilepsy have been treated for a century at this point with the ketogenic diet. It's the gold standard treatment. Um, but there now there are now a number of randomized controlled trials that are showing us there's a signal in the literature that it might also be helpful for people with um, Alzheimer's disease and maybe even other forms of dementia. Because what happens in Alzheimer's disease is that there's a metabolic deficit. The brain ceases to be able to effectively generate ATP which is the energy currency of cells uh, from glucose, but its ability to generate energy from ketone bodies goes on unperturbed. So in a brain that's struggling to create energy, ketones provide an ability to essentially keep the lights on in the metabolically ailing brain. And this is something that uh, happens to a, a pronounced degree in Alzheimer's disease by about 50%, um, but happens more subtly. We see a more subtle energy deficit um, preclinically. So even before the symptoms of, of Alzheimer's disease. So there's this notion, there's this, there's this uh, speculation that people who are genetically at risk for Alzheimer's disease, their brains um, may in general do better, at least with occasional access to ketone bodies. Um, so I think that's like an important nuance that needs to be had. And, and I think ketones, you know, we need to be talking about the ketogenic diet as a, as a therapeutic modality for these conditions, right? Because we don't have viable drug options. I mean, as we started out this podcast talking about the drug options are not very effective. They have no disease modifying effect and Alzheimer's drug trials have a 99.6% fail rate. So we have to be talking about alternate modalities. And I think the ketogenic diet is, it's very ex uh, exciting. I will say that it's difficult. Um, it's not an easy intervention, um, and it becomes increasingly more difficult to somebody with active dementia. Really? Because, well, yeah, because as dementia progresses, patients actually will develop a sweet tooth. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is very sad, but it, it, it is um, indicative, perhaps, of the fact that the brain is essentially crying out for sugar because it's unable to effectively generate energy with sugar. Um, so that's where circumventing that ailing energetic capacity with ketone bodies an alternate fuel source um, becomes a plausible sort of secondary uh, energy option. It's so wild um, because we, we arrive in 
pre- the present, really having bodies that evolved over a millennia uh, in a certain way, u- utilizing the fuels that they had to hand that were available to them naturally or that they had to go hunt for, right? And and now, you know, I don't think there's been enough time for our bodies to have evolved to deal with technology in the way we, so we have all these other things happening, like uh, we're, we're, we're now living much longer, but our bodies are degenerating in other ways that we, we have to try to figure out. But if, if, if we can be so scientific about everything, it is odd to me that it's not being taught like the way we're served carbohydrates today really is like a rocket fuel. Right. And anecdotally for myself, I know that if I have uh, carbohydrates uh, removed from their fiber at night and go to sleep, I wake up with a hangover. Like Mm -hmm. basically that's what happens. If I have them in the gym, while I'm exercising, I feel a boost and then I feel fine afterwards. And this is how I process them. But for a long time, I was just scared of them and, uh, and okay with a kind of a lackluster results in the gym. And now, now I am able to use them. But like, if, if, if I take a day off from the gym, which I do once a week, my carbs drop to almost nothing because I don't want to feel like crap. Yeah. I mean, I'm right there with you. And, you know, it's interesting. Animal models have shown that when you increase, when you dramatically increase an animal's, a mouse's blood sugar, um, there's a, a, a dramatic increase as well of amyloid beta, which is this, pl- this protein that forms the plaque that we associate with Alzheimer's disease. And when you spike, when you spike insulin before bed, insulin interferes with an enzyme in the brain called insulin degrading enzyme. So obviously insulin degrading enzyme has a relationship with insulin. The problem is that insulin degrading enzyme also breaks down this amyloid protein and prevents it from, it keeps it soluble, prevents it from, from sticking around and clumping together these proteins and misfolding and forming the plaques that ultimately are indicative of a brain riddled with Alzheimer's disease. And so there's this speculation and it hasn't necessarily been proven, but that by keeping insulin low in the pre-bed window, um, you help insulin degrading enzyme do its job of clearing the brain of these proteins that can otherwise become problematic. That's fascinating. Yeah. Have you, have you, this is a, a, almost an aside, but just because you've researched this a lot, did you look at the studies that show a potential offset and early onset Alzheimer's with those who ingest nicotine? You know, it's interesting that you ask. Um, I'm not aware of any relationship between nicotine and Alzheimer's disease, other than the fact that smoking is associated with increased risk for Alzheimer's disease. But smoking is paradoxically associated with decreased risk for Parkinson's disease. Right. Yeah. And nicotine is a a nootropic um, substance. It's actually, it's a natural substance. It's found in nightshade vegetables. So any nightshade that you consume, tobacco is actually a nightshade plant, but bell peppers um, actually have nicotine in them. Is um, this a good strategy if you want to quit smoking to start eating nightshades and maybe to you know, like to wean off? Maybe it's the very low levels, very low levels. But um, but no, nicotine does have a protective effect on the brain, at least with respect to Parkinson's disease, which is which is super interesting. Um, I don't what smoke, I, what I, but I suck on nicotine lozenges. This is why I ask. 
Yeah. Well, you know, it would be interesting to see because your mother had a Parkinsonian condition, correct? Yeah. So you have a genetic risk factor. You, you might have a genetic risk factor for Parkinson's disease. Um, and so it would be interesting to see, you know, how that, how that fares. But, um, but yeah, nicotine is an interesting compound. It, it, it is. I, I think it's not great if you're inhaling it with a bunch of carcinogenic smoke. So I, I wouldn't, I'm not, I'm not advocating for nicotine one way or the other. I just happen to like nicotine as a substance. It's my, like my last vice. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. I get it. My, yeah, uh, I, I don't um, smoke. I don't mess with nicotine or anything like that. But, uh, but yeah, it is interesting that there's, this sort of protective effect. And yet we associate it as being purely a, a harmful compound. There are a lot of compounds in plants like nicotine that are generated by the plant to serve as a sort of insecticide, um, herbicide, and in humans, as robust as we, as we are, stimulate a protective response. So whether it's nicotine or caffeine, right? Caffeine is actually a, an insecticide, but creates feelings of euphoria in us. It's an ergogenic compound. Consumption of, of caffeinated drinks like coffee and green tea are associated with better cognitive health, better metabolic health, better cardiovascular health. Um, so there are, uh, I mean, nature is littered with compounds that act like a double-edged sword, right? Like really beneficial in small doses can kill you in high doses. But I this is anything. Is, Salt can yeah. kill you in high doses. And if you if you if you are completely removed from it, you also die because you can't your electrolytes get out of whack, right? Like there's a lot out there that's like that. Absolutely. That's why I think it's so futile to demonize any singular food group with the exception of the food groups the the quote unquote food groups the franken foods that we humans have devised right but if it comes from nature i know, and i know that there's this appeal to nature fallacy i know that not everything in nature is good for us arsenic is natural i know that okay but is there any use for for microdosing <laughs> arsenic any not that i'm no. not that i'm okay. aware of <laughs> um but you know regular consumers of brown rice are regu are regularly microdosing arsenic right so who knows? We'll see. Observationally, yeah. that's where observational level evidence can actually come in handy. Yeah, uh, I, I I think it's all fascinating. I, I started um, changing my life simply because I was unhappy with myself and I've, I've arrived at a place where I suddenly am thinking about this, you know, because of, of, of familial histories, but also you know, there was a time in my life where I didn't ever imagine living past 25. And so who cares about old age? And now I arrive at 45 and I'm like, am I going to make it to 80? And what does 80 looks look like? And I, if, if we continue to gr grow older as a uh, species and require the use of our bodies less, like as we do, we arrive today not needing to go out and hunt food or 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 really gather food. We can get in a car and, or have it dropped off at our house by Postmates, right? Our bodies are not as necessary as they were. What's the most vital thing we have? And we don't even understand it. Like our top scientists, like as you said, they are 
admiring disease, right? Like it's just an interesting thing to look at because they know so little about the brain and how to protect it. And so this is a really fascinating subject. Yeah, man. And uh, 90% of what we know about Alzheimer's disease, which is just the most common form of dementia, it's not the only form of dementia, as you and I both are well aware, has been discovered in the past 15 years. So rapidly evolving science, lots of room for insight and knowledge. And yeah, we're just at the tip of the iceberg. But given that, you know, we are also at an incredible place where we do know enough, where we no longer need to sit idly on our hands as we await answers in terms of how we can properly nourish ourselves and, and, and our loved ones. So um, I'm grateful for, for science and, and also people like you who are just like, and me and, and everybody in this community who are out there just looking for answers and, and putting it forward and, and, and trying to do our part to disseminate this knowledge, because, you know, we know that people aren't really getting it from the mainstream channels, especially these days. So thank you for being a voice. Uh, Thank and, you, Max. And, and, and bringing all this to your audience, it's, it's really um, powerful. Yeah, I appreciate it. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ethan. And now for the Q&A. Today, I have a question. That stands for question, question and answer, because oh. some people might not know that page. Right. Q yeah. and See, A. I am a wealth. I am what they call a wealth of knowledge. Q&A. This is probably bonus content really no one was expecting this deep answer that's what i'm saying like yeah. people were like what the fuck's a q a and now they know so now they I'm know saying you're welcome, well everyone yeah congratulations uh to everyone who got to hear this yeah i have a question for you today from someone named jesse hi jesse jesse says I've been on a weight loss trajectory for about a year, but I still wish my body looked better. I try to be grateful for where I am. After all, it's better than where I started, but it's just so hard sometimes. I guess my question is, how do I just be happy with where I'm at instead of always being just a little bit bummed out that I don't look better? Yeah, dude. And listen, I say dude because I call my each one of my four daughters dude. So if Jesse's a gal, I mean, no offense. I, again, call my daughter's dude. I only would call my wife dude if I was annoyed with her. <laughs> but I have called her dude, too. And it yeah. sounds like this. Come on, dude. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm saying dude to you, Jesse, and hoping you're a guy. Yeah. I'm glad we cleared that up. We don't this know. Is like, this, is, this is called being cancel proof, Paige. Yeah, no, I just, appreciate just this. So you know. Yeah. Um, I have never felt great about how I looked. And I did a, f a photo shoot where, you know, I, my whole body got waxed. I went to a tanning salon for a while. I had a girl rub, um, I don't know what it's called, self-tanner or bronzer on me. Um, and I still, you know, I had visible abs. I had some vascularity in my abdomen, which means I was really lean. And I still was like, ugh, had problems with it. I don't know that it's in the cards for people like us to ever go like, you know, and maybe for moments, I've definitely had moments where I'm like, holy smokes, I'm, I'm looking great. 
but it's really fleeting. It's not a permanent thing. And so really what I do is try to use that as best I can to keep me motivated and on track because I'm, I'm slightly scared of the day, the few times in my life that I, I think I felt like I've made it, I've done it. That's the end. And then I'm Im- immediately regressing. And so I think there's got to be some kind of a, a, a middle ground where you're not just beating yourself up all the time. That's certainly not healthy, but you can constantly be making new goals and having new plans and going like, you know, I mean, I say all that. I don't think people should be going around feeling bad about how they look. I don't think that's good. Um, it's a, it's a tricky, tough situation. I will look in the mirror and find one thing that doesn't disgust me and then try to build upon that and go like, Oh, this part of my body, I actually like, I don't even feel like it needs to improve. Right. Like sometime it'll be my clavicle and my trap and I'll go like, Oh, that's a well-defined trapezius muscle. That's really great. I'm not like ashamed of that. And then I can try to build upon that, you know, and, and get to a point where I'm feeling better, not, not, not in totality, but, um, the, the overall net is better than bad than down on myself. That's really the only advice I have, but I don't think, I don't know that it magically goes away, this kind of shame and self-loathing. I think you got to really work work at it for a long time. Or, or that's been the reality for me. Yeah, I just love what you said toward the end there, like find one thing, find something you can admire. You can actually take that you know, into so many different areas of life. You could literally be having a fight with your spouse and go, let me just find one thing about what they're saying that I can, you know, look at or whatever. I don't know. I just, and and I just have, yeah, I I love what you're saying. Just look in the mirror, find one thing. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, maybe I also just want to say, Jesse's saying they've been on a weight loss, you know, trajectory here for about a year. And so in the, I just think like in the grand scheme of our lives, that's actually a relatively short time, you know? And so sometimes it might take a little while to get in the habit of being good to yourself, not finding only the things that are wrong, you know? Totally. And I I think that at the end of the day that we can be in charge of our thoughts. And if we recognize that we might do better in our pursuits, if we have a, a preponderance of positive thoughts, then like, I'm going to lead you here, but think of an apple. Did you think of an apple? Okay, good. So like you have the ability to have that thought. You can tell yourself to think of an apple. This is a really gross example, right? But if you have something that you can uh, mostly think positive about when you're feeling down about yourself and not in an irresponsible way, sometimes that's a mechanism for us to use to change uh, some behavior that we've determined is bad. But if you're just like you're working towards your goal and you're, you're still feeling so down about yourself that it's actually getting in your way of continuing your effort towards your goal, 
just force yourself to think of other things. Literally write down a list of stuff that's not going to bum you out or depress you and then cycle through it. Think of your mom. Think of your, you know, your favorite bicycle as a kid, whatever it is. Or maybe some people need to get out more, go for a walk, look at stuff. You know, if you live in a downtown city where there's a lot of people smoking crack and shooting dope, maybe you don't want to walk around that area and look at stuff because that would be upsetting. But like go to a place where there's like long expanses to 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 look outwards at stuff, look at mountains, look at um, water, look at nature, something get out of your head, or if you're in your head, force yourself, force your head to be at least a pleasant place to be. Um, That's not always easy. That's not always like, that's definitely not a permanent fix to anything, but I will find myself when I'm down and especially really down on myself, I'll go, is there a quick and easy thing that I can do to at least work towards whatever's bumming me out. And if not, if it's all just mental baggage and garbage, then I'll go like, I'm going to think of something else. And I have a list of stuff that I think about. I like riding bikes. I like lifting weights. I like playing with my kids. I like my dog. I'll literally think of these things and feel better and then proceed with my day. Yeah, that's great uh, advice. Thank you. That's my advice to Jesse. I like it. Thank you, Jesse, for your question. You were going to say something? No, you no? have to say it. Yeah, I was to about say. to say it, and I thought you I were going to say it. I, I was just going to tell everybody listening that if they have a question that they would like Ethan to answer on this podcast, please send it to us at AmericanGlutton.net. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee. You can follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.